The interview you're about to hear was aired on Planet Philadelphia on Germantown Community Radio at 92.9 FM, WGGTLP Philadelphia, and gtownradio.com. I'm Kay Wood, the host of Planet Philadelphia. Linda Rosenwein is here with me today on this Zoom call, and we'll be talking with Adam Peltz. He's a senior attorney at the Environmental Defense Fund's energy program, and we're going to be talking about oil and gas wells, many of which have been abandoned. So hello, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to join you both. And before we get into the actual meat of the interview, if you could just tell listeners a little bit about yourself, that would be great. Uh, Sure. Well, uh, I'm Adam Peltz. I'm a senior attorney at the Environmental Defense Fund, which is a national environmental nonprofit. And my work for the past 10 years has been focused on reducing the environmental impacts of oil and gas development uh, around the country. Um, And Pennsylvania is a particular area of interest um, with the the huge shale boom that's occurred in the the Commonwealth over the past 15 years or so. Uh, And a lot of attention is now being paid to the very large number of orphaned and abandoned wells uh, throughout the, the state. Pennsylvania has uh, the most uh, number of these of uh, any state in the country and perhaps any jurisdiction in the world. Wow, that is pretty amazing. Adam, for some reason, when you were recording that, the sound level was going in and out. So I don't know if you could move, yeah, maybe hold up the microphone closer to your mouth or something because it was fading away. Uh, okay, I will. Uh, is this better? Yeah, that's much better. Before we get into the abandoned oil and gas wells, um, I thought we'd start briefly with something a little broader. Um, I see from your writings that uh, the Environmental Defense Fund has a framework document to make oil and gas wells safer, which was recently updated. So could you tell us briefly about that, what's in it, and how people could get that document? Sure. So this is something that we call the uh, model regulatory framework uh, for uh, onshore hydraulically fractured production wells, which is basically to say most of the active oil and gas wells uh, in in the United States, aside from the, the, the ones in the Gulf of Mexico. And the idea behind this document um, is to provide oil and gas regulators and, and that you know, there's 30, 30 states with oil and gas um, activity, and each state has its own regulatory agency that oversees most aspects of oil and gas production. So there's a little bit of federal regulation related to oil and gas, especially around air and methane issues, but um, much of oil and gas regulation is at the, the state level, especially when looking from the, the wellhead on down into into the geology. And it's really that portion um, of a well's existence and life cycle that this document targets. And so the idea is that, you know, you want to make sure you're paying attention to risk factors from 
first stages of permitting through drilling, construction, uh, completions, operation, and, uh, and closure uh, to make sure that there aren't leaks to the environment that could contaminate groundwater or allow uh, harmful chemicals to escape into the atmosphere. And this is a document that uh, we have worked on with a variety of other NGOs and uh, leading operators to uh, try to find the, the sweet spot of um, smart regulatory options that states looking to upgrade their programs can adopt. Uh, and in fact, Colorado uh, just last year used um, aspects of this document to upgrade its well integrity program that is keeping wells from leaking and exploding uh, and has uh, ended up with the strongest well integrity rules in the country. And they had um, universal support from industry NGOs and, uh, and the, the state regulators. You know, we try to put out uh, you know, scientifically and engineering minded uh, ideas for how to reduce risk. And we found that that's a, um, a, a really smart way to get everyone into a room discussing the best ways to, uh, to prevent problems from happening from these oil and gas wells. If people want to see this document, how would they do that? Uh, they, they could go to edf.org slash MRF. MRF standing for Model Regulatory Framework. Uh, I have to caution that it's a 50-page uh, document that's written in legal technical language that's mostly there for regulators to absorb. But by all means, if the public is interested, please take a look. And, and there's an email address on there. Those emails go to me, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Well, let's get back to the abandoned oil and gas wells. You mentioned something when we started that seemed pretty dramatic about the state of abandoned wells in Pennsylvania. Yes. Uh, so there, there has been oil and gas drilling in Pennsylvania, as I'm sure many listeners know, since the 1850s. Uh, Drake's well in northwest Pennsylvania was one of the first wells, uh, was the first well in the country and one of the earliest in the world. Um, and Pennsylvania was the site of an oil boom for a very long time. Um, and between the 1850s and the 1950s, many, many, many hundreds of thousands of wells were drilled, especially in the Western and Northern parts of the state. But there wasn't all that much of a regulatory framework, regulatory oversight for those wells. And they were drilled right next to each other in a huge profusion. Uh, and you know, without rules on you know, making sure that wells have to be plugged and be plugged properly and making sure there was money in the system for that to occur. Many of these wells, once they stopped being economic for the operators, the operators just walked away and the wells have simply sat there ever since. Uh, and so many states have problems with having wells that were drilled and, and never plugged, but few have this history of 100 years of very intensive development before regulatory systems were in place. And so uh, Pennsylvania has around 8,500 documented orphan wells where the state has gone through the process of ascertaining 
that there is no solvent owner of record and that in fact, the liability to plug the wells falls to the state. But there are anywhere from, and this is the state's estimate, 100,000 to perhaps 550,000 undocumented orphan wells, most of which the locations are unknown uh, that are scattered around the state. And so that's what makes Pennsylvania really unique uh, in this regard with the only close analog being Alberta, which, which had a similar story. I can't imagine the scope of the problems that these wells are creating being abandoned like that. Yeah, what, what is the problem of having them being abandoned? What are the risks and terrible things that, that could happen because they're abandoned? Well, so the issue with these wells is that because there are you know, holes in the ground thousands of feet deep that pass through many layers of geology uh, without necessarily um, isolating those layers to prevent flow, uh, you can get methane emissions, um, methane being a very powerful greenhouse gas with around 85 times the warming potential of CO2 on a 20-year time horizon. Methane can leak into those wells and then up to the surface and into the atmosphere. Um, and the EPA estimates that uh, of around 2 million uh, drilled but unplugged wells in the United States are leaking 7 megatons of, of, um, of CO2 equivalent per year. And so Pennsylvania's share of that comes to the equivalent of a few hundred thousand cars per year on the road. And that's a low end estimate because um, the methane emissions from these wells hasn't been all that well characterized. So it could be, it could be more than that. Um, so that's one problem. And another problem is that these wells can also cause groundwater contamination since uh, pretty much all of them go through aquifers. And if the aquifers aren't sealed off and if the, um, if the geology below the aquifers, which can contain methane and other chemicals that can flow upwards into the aquifers aren't sealed off, you can get uh, groundwater contamination. And of course, you know, groundwater is precious. Once it's contaminated, it's pretty expensive to clean up. And, and so those are, those are two of the biggies. Um, and then I'll just note as a side issue that when the shale boom was kicking off um, in you know, 2005 to 2010, and operators were coming in from Texas and elsewhere that didn't really know Pennsylvania's geology and history all that well, uh, there were lots of incidents where operators would, would be fracking their wells and hit one of these orphans, uh, and the orphans provided a conduit for fluid migration or pressure migration uh, through these orphans uh, to sensitive subsurface receptors and to the surface. So there were a handful of geysers uh, that resulted from this that you could look up on YouTube. That doesn't happen as much anymore because everyone's gotten a little bit smarter about what to do. Uh, but it's it's still an issue, and and uh, operators often have to, as part of their permitting process, especially the uh, the shale operators, have to do a review uh, of the land area around the wells uh, that they're trying to get permitted to assess whether there are orphan wells that can act as conduits uh, in order to 
uh, plug them so that they will not uh, basically make it impossible to, uh, to, to conduct the operations. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of issues with, with these wells overall. Yeah, one thing I heard was also even just for a farmer, you're mowing your fields and you're, you know, this equipment or this well pipe is sticking up and you're running over it and it's rusting or whatever. In, indeed. And, you know, these wells around the country will occasionally appear, say, below a, a school gym or a convention center. And then they run the risk of uh, leaking methane into an enclosed space where you could have an explosion. Uh, and that's, you know, obviously really bad and, and, and uh, needs to be guarded against. And there have been fatalities due to incidents like this around the country. Sounds like quite a big problem. Um, what are some of the difficulties we're facing solving it? So um, wells are pretty expensive to plug. And the older and the deeper they are, the more expensive they are to plug. Some of these old wells are pretty deep. Uh, the Pennsylvanians of the 1850s through 1900 were industrious and went pretty far down to, uh, to get their hydrocarbons. Um, and um, the casing in those wells, the steel casing, basically the pipes that you know, provide the structural integrity uh, of the wells often corrode and make it all the more complicated uh, to ensure good cement seals of all the zones that need to be isolated. And so um, Pennsylvania has an orphan well plugging program. Uh, and the average costs that, that Pennsylvania reported um, in 2018 was $80,000 per well. And so if you consider um, that there are hundreds of thousands of wells, 80,000 times 200,000 is a lot. There's a lot of zeros there. Hmm. Uh, and the orphan well fund in Pennsylvania is uh, is fairly small, uh, a few hundred thousand dollars a year. So in 2018, the uh, the Department of Environmental Protection plugged six orphan wells uh, using this fund. Now some of those are probably more expensive wells than average. Um, the the state has plugged 3,156 wells since 1985, which is pretty small compared to the total burden. Apparently, the drillers weren't required to put up money ahead of time to take care of the wells, or how did it get to this state? Well, that that you have your your finger on the on the problem. So, you know, ideally, the way that that this works is that over the lifetime of a well, operators are uh, putting money aside to pay for that well's plugging at the end of life, uh, or um, or operators will be making money by drilling new wells and using that money to plug old wells. And that's been the model that's applied around the country. Um, states know that you know, that won't always work out. And so require uh, uh, bonds and other forms of financial assurance, letters of credit, what have you, to be put up uh, so that if an operator goes bankrupt, there is money available for the state uh, to, uh, to fund the, the, the plugging of the well. Um, 
Pennsylvania is unique in that there are no bonds required for wells drilled before 1985, which is the majority of all the wells that have ever been drilled in the state. Uh, I am not aware of any other state that has a carve out like that. That's, that's problem number one, and that's probably problem number one through 10. Um, but it's also worth noting that the single well bonds in Pennsylvania range from $2,500 to $10,000 a well, which is certainly less than the average cost of $80,000. And um, there's also a mechanism called a blanket bond, which allows operators to bond as many wells as they want, pretty much, for $25,000 statewide. And so for an operator that has a few thousand wells, and there's plenty of those, uh, that's very little money per well uh, to, to plug the wells. Now, in a system where you have continuous development of new wells um, that pay for the plugging of old wells, that may not be an issue. But um, the oil and gas industry is cyclic, and there have been uh, you know, scads of bankruptcies uh, in you know, various decades. And right at, at the present moment, there is a, a crisis in the industry, partially because of a, a, a price war with OPEC, partially because of uh, reduced demand from COVID. And then on the long-term horizon, thinking about energy transition as we head towards a carbon neutral economy over the next few decades, um, the oil and gas demand won't go away. I mean, certainly the petrochemical industry will, will need uh, feedstock, but demand is expected to drop overall and thus fewer wells, less money in the system to plug the wells. So it's critical to uh, think about how these bonding and financial assurance amounts and rules and structures can be modified to increase the amount of money in the system to pay for the plugging, but to do it in a way that doesn't instantly bankrupt, say, 50,000 well operators who uh, are operating wells that can more or less pay for themselves, but will never be able to pay for their plugging. So it's a, it's a real public policy challenge, but it's incumbent on us to figure it out. So I gather some things have been done so far that are maybe not addressing the problem, but what are the current approaches to this problem? And could you tell us about each one of them and the likelihood of being successful? Well, there is a possible deus ex machina, which I haven't mentioned yet, in the form of uh, a large-scale federal stimulus uh, that's targeted at plugging and remediating orphan well sites. And so this is an idea that uh, started cropping up uh, last March, right, right as, um, as we were all going into lockdown, and people were thinking, what might be good ideas for, uh, for stimulus efforts that have environmental benefits? And so many people simultaneously came up with the idea of large-scale plugging of orphan wells. Because this has been an issue that state oil and gas regulators and many others have been aware of for a very long time. And since the beginning of the oil and gas industry, this has been going on. Uh, and so nationwide, there's around 57,000 documented orphan wells 
you know, Pennsylvania has, I guess, a seventh of that, more or less, and then hundreds of thousands of, of undocumented ones, of which Pennsylvania has a big share. Um, 30 states, I mentioned before, have oil and gas development. Well, 30, 30 states have orphan wells, too. And so there is a real opportunity to, and, and, and perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, for a huge number of these wells to get plugged, which would not only have great environmental benefits, but also would put a lot of uh, out-of-work oil field service workers back on the job um, and, and, you know, across especially rural regions, and these are pretty well-paying, skilled jobs. There's a lot of people sitting around idle who would love to be able to get back to work and and plugging wells is a pretty good way to do it. And this idea has pretty strong support from the Biden administration and from uh, legislators across the political spectrum and across the country. And so uh, the quickest route to a big solution to this problem, I, I think would be through a federal stimulus effort. It's almost like your wishes answered almost. <laughs> we hope. Well, yeah, well, not, not yet. I mean, you know, there's, we'll see. You, 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 you can't, you can't conjure up a, a, a four to $5 billion package into existence by will alone, but, no. but that is around the scale that, that some people are talking um, for, for a nationwide effort of which Pennsylvania could be a pretty major nine figure beneficiary, um, you know, over, over several years. Because you know you can't you can't plug all these wells right away. It takes it takes a lot of work and a lot of uh, oversight by the regulator to make sure that the plugging is is going the way that it should be. Uh, but it is reason for optimism around this problem because otherwise, at the rate um, at the rate that Pennsylvania and other states are going, it'll take thousands of years to plug all of these wells, which is not uh, not a great timetable. We'll have just a brief pause here to remind you that this is Planet Philadelphia on Germantown Community Radio at 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and gtownradio.com. Germantown Community Radio and Historic Germantown want you to explore the many unique places and spaces our community has to offer. Germantown is a vibrant neighborhood with lots of stories to share from both the present and the past. Wick House and Garden has been a family residence since the 1690s. While the original log home no longer exists, the current house began in 1736 and gradually evolved over the next century. It remains virtually unchanged since its last renovation in 1824. Did you also know Wick's famous Rose Garden, the oldest in the country, was once home to the Germantown Brewery? The Haynes family lived at Wick while running a popular brewery downtown. During the 1700s, the brewery located on Market Street was frequented by founding fathers, including Ben Franklin. In 1794, the brewery moved next to the Wick Garden at what is now Walnut Lane. To learn more about the culture and history in your own backyard, visit the 18 sites of historic Germantown. Find out when to visit and hear about upcoming programs and events at freedomsbackyard.com. And now back to our interview. Another thing we heard about, which is sort of intriguing to us, is other uses for these wells. I mean, recently we interviewed somebody who's talking about using basalt, rock salts on agricultural land to pull out carbon and 
I mean, there's probably a lot of that basalt in there, or maybe another idea would be harvesting escaping methane or energy storage systems. So what are your thoughts about these other uses for the wells? Well, there's there's a lot of intriguing ideas around for, for what to do with these wells and sites that I think all deserve more attention, thought, and study. You know, sometimes in Pennsylvania, even as a, a program for this, well, these orphan wells can be adopted, so to speak, and um, and put back into service in some cases after they've been worked over. So that's that's one possibility. Uh, another another possibility that to use the well bore as it exists is uh, for geothermal energy, uh, which is not doesn't necessarily work everywhere, and it, it's very specific to the geology, whether it makes sense in any given place. And, and I don't know if, if that concept has been assessed in Pennsylvania in particular, but uh, there's, a, there's a certain elegance to it. Another pathway is thinking about uh, these well sites, which are you know, little brown fields that are scattered all over the place. And what can be done with this land? You know, What is so land intensive? Renewable energy is land intensive. So you can put potentially wind and solar on some of these sites uh, to repurpose this land, which would probably be a lot cheaper than trying to uh, restore it to pre-existing conditions. Of course, in Pennsylvania, a lot of these wells, people don't know where they are because they're scattered in the forest floor. So it's not like there's big open spaces to clean up. So it's really kind of a tract by tract question of what best to do with them. I think for a lot in Pennsylvania, the answer will just be to plug them. Um, and with more analysis of what the flows and risks are, you know, it may not be the case that we have to plug every single one. Some of them may have more or less self-plugged in a way that they're no longer leaking. There's a lot of assessment work to do, and it'll be nice when we have the luxury of asking that question instead of just staring at this uh, daunting portfolio of hundreds of thousands of wells. So there might be some mitigating things that could be done. I, I think for the most part, it's just going to be a lot of plugging. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there might be a lot of jobs also in doing the assessment of what's going on with these wells. Indeed, uh, there's an increasingly large industry around the country in uh, methane emissions monitoring, um, which uh, is great. And you need to find the problem in order to fix it. Uh, and um, methane emissions monitoring is pretty good bang for the buck if you identify an especially leaky site, then uh, then you can get to it quickly. And you know, many things in the oil and gas universe. If you look at the methane emissions profile, uh, there will be a few super emitters that make up the plurality of the emissions of the system. And so, if you find and fix those first, then you can uh, make a lot of progress for uh, for not not too much effort. Uh, another approach we read about was using carbon offsets. And for some reason, I don't know why this approach, I, I seem to read needed public comments. Is that something that's a, a viable thing? Yeah, you know, it, it might be. Um, and there are efforts right now to figure out um, whether using a carbon credit or carbon offset model might make sense for plugging these wells. So you have to do a lot of calculus about, you know, how much is actually being emitted by a particular well, because it can vary tremendously. 
And then what time frame are you calculating along? Because these wells could emit for hundreds of years or not. And so you have to estimate an amount of time that they might be leaking for. And, and then you assign a value to it um, based on a conversion from methane to CO2 and then from a social cost of carbon. And then you have to compare that against the cost of actually plugging a well. Uh, I suspect that something like that, you know, could at least offset some of the costs. Um, and, and this would, you know, most likely be voluntary uh, carbon credits, but if, you know, there could be room for inclusion in a mandatory system at some point. So, so that is, that is a plausible market solution to, to raise some capital for this. And, and of course, um, you know, in addition to dealing with the existing, um, the existing supply of, of orphan wells, it's really important for, uh, for Pennsylvania and every state to think about how it can reform uh, the, the rules that have allowed orphan wells to come into existence in the first place. And so we talked a lot about bonding and financial assurance, but there are other rules like how long can a well stay idle before it's required to be plugged by the agency? Um, and what must be done during that idle period to ensure that there isn't environmental damage going on. Um, uh, Long-term idle wells are the precursor to orphan wells. And the longer that they sit around idle, the less opportunity there is for money to be made to actually pay for the plugging. So, um, so getting a fix on, on how permissive idle well rules are is important. And so too is um, oversight on transfer of wells. So uh, one of the com most common fact patterns for well orphaning is that a big solvent company will drill the well and uh, operate it for some number of years. And then as production slows, they will sell it um, down, the, down the chain to an entity with lower operating costs, uh, which will operate it for another number of years until it is really very low producing. And then, then that company may sell it to essentially a bankruptcy proof entity uh, to squeeze out whatever revenue there is left. And in a world where you can get a blanket bond for $25,000 for every well, that's really all you need to take on uh, you know, a thousand wells. Uh, that really creates a risk that um, there won't be money in place to plug those wells. And so um, enabling regulators to have more say into whether a transfer occurs you know, through perhaps conducting liquidity analyses of these companies um, is also an important step to take towards reducing future orphan well burden. Oh, I'm going to ask about fees for idle wells. I sort of uh, implied that might be part of that time in which they're going towards abandonment. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's um, a, a number of states have uh, adopted or raised their fees on idle wells in recent years, both to help pay for plugging and as a discouragement for, for, for operators to leave wells idle long term. And, and so there's a lot of different ways that money can be raised from the industry to plug the wells. And it definitely makes sense to raise the money from industry. The question is, how do you do it in a way that doesn't knock the operator into bankruptcy and make the problem even worse than when you're than when you started. 
when we started this discussion, you mentioned that there was bipartisan support for doing something about abandoned wells, uh, oil and gas wells. And was that nationally or is that like the states are on board too? So this has been an issue that uh, states like New Mexico and North Dakota and California and Texas and Oklahoma have paid a lot of attention to and uh, would love to uh, see stimulus dollars going to plugging orphan wells. And you know, those states represent a cross section uh, of, the, of, the, of the political spectrum. And um, there are legislators uh, on, in both the House and Senate uh, on both, both parties that are thinking about ways to get orphan well stimulus into uh, upcoming federal stimulus rounds. Is there any receptivity to this in Harrisburg, our capital of Pennsylvania? So uh, one of the bills that was introduced in the last Congress came from Representative Thompson in, in Northwest Pennsylvania. Of course, that's, um, that's the U.S. House. Um, on the state's side, within, uh, within the state legislature, I mean, there isn't really the ability to print a few hundred million dollars to, uh, to work on this problem. Um, my read is that um, at least the Pennsylvania congressional delegation is very interested in seeing this occurring. Uh, I know that the, the Department of Environmental Protection uh, would like to see this occur since they have been working uh, creatively for years on tiny budget to try to, uh, to, try to get a handle on this uh, problem. And they've done a lot of really good, uh, they've done a lot of good methane science and have partnered with universities across the state to do work um, and they've put out a lot of good studies and there's more to come to lay the groundwork for all this and to make sure that if stimulus does come, they're ready with the uh, procurement programs uh, to get the money out, to get boots on the ground soon. Uh, so I, I would say within the state, there's a lot of, of interest in making, making this happen. Linda? Yeah, on the other hand, I read about Senate Bill 790, which would result in decreased financial res responsibility for the public co uh, companies um, about capping these wells or monitoring them. Is that a, something that is of concern, you think? Well, so, uh, so that was a bill that, um, that was seeking to roll back regulation on the conventional industry in Pennsylvania. So there's, um, let's say there's around 120,000 active wells in the state, more or less, uh, of which 10,000 are um, Marcella shale wells, and the rest are conventional wells, which are vertic mostly vertical oil wells. And Pennsylvania is unique in having bifurcated regulation for the shale wells and the conventional wells. That happened some years back um, after the passage of... Um, of Act 13, which is a major oil and gas legislation from, I believe, 2012. Um, and in any case, uh, the conventional operators felt like the rules that applied to the shale operators were too onerous for them and they weren't able to conduct business under those rules and so have been trying to get the rules changed 
for years to um, uh, to have more tailored rules to the conventional industry. And so there was a, a, a lot of effort towards rulemaking, uh, which kind of stalled out and uh, instead uh, some, uh, some conventional operators and um, Pennsylvania legislators decided to go with a legislative push to do a rollback on the rules, basically returning in the first drafts of, of, of this legislation, returning the rules to what they were like in the late 80s, which were not all that protective. Um, the final bill that was passed and then vetoed by Governor Wolf um, in recent months uh, was modified somewhat, but still was a rollback uh, and would not have addressed this core issue of no bonding for wells from before the 80s and would also have set limits on how much the, the DEP could change bonding rates. Uh, and so I'm glad that bill was vetoed. It was not a good bill. Um, the better way to regulate the conventional uh, well industry is in fact through regulation, like was, like was intended uh, with you know, negotiated fact and risk-based rules that are properly tailored to the activity. Um, that process has started up again uh, and there are some uh, proposed rules out there on certain aspects of the conventional uh, industry. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, there aren't proposals yet on bonding reform. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of those. Um, there may be both legislative and regulatory avenues to, um, to improve the situation, but it's going to be some tough sledding because um, you know, the conventional industry likes that they didn't have to post bonds for any of these old wells. And, and that's a hard thing to give up. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how the, the politics on that evolve in the state. And I would hope that if there is a federal orphan well stimulus effort, um, it would shine more of a spotlight on how this came to be. And it would, um, uh, it would create more pressure to uh, make reforms in the rules that would help prevent this problem from happening in the future. Okay, so um, I'm pretty much through my questions. Linda, did you have anything else? Um, well, um, are there other things that you want to bring up that we haven't asked about that are important? So I think we I think we covered a lot of ground. So there's uh, there's a big problem that Pennsylvania faces, bigger than anywhere else in the country, uh, but the, you know, there's good people in Harrisburg who are, are ready to deal with it uh, when the money comes on the one hand, you know, and there's also opportunity for uh, those regulators and for legislators to attack the root of this problem and figure out ways to uh, fund the plugging of wells as they reach the end of their economic life so that the next generation doesn't have to deal with this problem. There's been a, a, Pennsylvania has a legacy of resource extraction that is not always properly dealt with when it's done. Um, but, you know, we here now can stop that cycle. I guess my follow-up question I realize is who are these regulators since they're not the legislative body? Who are they? 
and how do so, they get to be there? <laughs> so, um, so the Department of Environmental Protection and all state agencies are part of the executive branch and they kind of, they have uh, ex executive, judicial, um, and legislative functions. They're quasi-independent, but not entirely independent. Uh, administrative law was one of my favorite subjects in law school. Um, so these agencies uh, are charged, are created by legislatures, and they uh, are, are staffed at the, uh, at the top levels by the governor, uh, and then at the at the staff levels, it's it's uh, civil servants, um, and the legislature gives them uh, parameters on what they should be doing, on what issues they should be dealing with, and and you know tell them okay, so you know we'll say create create a, a set of rules on on oil and gas or on on methane emissions reductions or on pipelines, and then the regulator will say okay, so. In those parameters, we will write the technical rules that are too detailed for a legislature to deal with, and we will publish them for notice and comments so that um, industry and communities and affected parties and the public can all opine on the rules. Uh, and then the, the agency, it's incumbent upon the agency to answer all those questions and explain why they've decided to do X, Y, or Z or not do X, Y, or Z. And then those rules have the force of law. And, um, and then they uh, play the role of permitting the operations and overseeing them to make sure that they're being conducted in accordance with the rules and um, you know, fining or otherwise requiring corrective actions if there are any problems and overall keeping track of all this activity. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a lot of work uh, that uh, I've found oil and gas regulators across the, the country, and, and this is, I think, true of a lot of administrative agencies to be somewhat un, unsung heroes. They have hard jobs. They're not paid all that well. No one likes them, but they keep, they keep the world running. Yeah, that's very clarifying, really helpful. Thank you. Is there anything else folks should know? No, I think, I think we've covered it well. Um, I, I am optimistic and hopeful about orphan well, federal orphan well stimulus having a, a huge positive impact on, on Pennsylvania. So, so fingers crossed for that over the next few months. And if people want to find out more, what would they do? If well, uh, we and other environmental groups try to um, keep our um, membership and the public Inform, but through blog posts and tweets and other public communications. And um, it's also worth calling your uh, representative or senator uh, to ask them whether they have heard about this issue and whether they support it. There haven't been bills introduced in this Congress yet, but they likely there likely will be uh, in the next in the next little while. All right. Well, I think that's it as far as I can see. So thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks so much, Adam. Well, it was my pleasure. This was a fun chat and, uh, and I'm glad that we were able to, to do it and talk about my favorite topic in the world, orphan wells. <laughs> <laughs> it's not something that your average person thinks about, but a lot more important than they realize. Yeah. 
I hope you will consider making a small monthly donation to help Planet Philadelphia continue presenting interviews on important underreported environmental topics and exploring their complexities and intersections. Thank you so much for your support. If you want to know more about Planet Philadelphia, go to planetphiladelphia.com. You could also find out more about other G-Town Radio programming by going to gtownradio.com. Thank you for listening.